my name is Brett Owens. I'm very excited to be here today. I really uh, like to appreciate uh, our faculty. Um, this is a, a combined webinar uh, representing both uh, ISACOS as well as AOSSM in collaboration. And we have uh, editorial uh, board members and leaders from both journals uh, of each society. So the Journal of uh, ISACOS as well as the American Journal of Sports Medicine. Our faculty today is uh, Leendert Blankovort. Uh, from the Netherlands, uh, where he is at the University of Amsterdam and serves as the managing editor uh, of the uh, Journal of Issacos. Uh, Dr. James Carey uh, from the University of Pennsylvania uh, in the United States is, uh, serves as an associate editor at American Journal of Sports Medicine. Uh, Miho Tanaka is uh, also from the United States from Harvard University and where she also is both a editorial board member as well as an electronic media editorial board member at the American Journal of Sports Medicine. And Dr. Nick Van Dyke, who serves as the editor-in-chief of the uh, Journal of Issacos uh, from the University of Amsterdam, also uh, from uh, the Netherlands as well. Uh, I'm Brett Owens. I'm from uh, Brown University in the United States, and I'm also an associate editor at AJSM. Uh, today, we're gonna be talking about how to maximize the impact of your research. We have a series of talks and hopefully some time at the end uh, to have a, a panel discussion. And also we really welcome uh, questions uh, from, from the audience and hope we have an interactive session and answer much of the questions on your mind about how to maximize your research. The talks that we have are first up is Dr. Nick Van Dyke will discuss how to ensure your manuscript is accepted. Uh, Dr. Carrier will cover an overview of the review process. Dr. Blancavort will discuss how to respond to reviewers. And then uh, finishing up will be Dr. Tanaka, who will discuss how, what do you do after your, your paper is accepted? How do you optimize the exposure uh, for your article? And then we'll have some time, hopefully at the end, for some question, questions and answers. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to move on to, to Dr. Van Dyke. He actually, we've just been notified, he's delayed in surgery. So he is going to um, not be live, but we will be uh, playing his pre-recorded uh, oh. Hold on, I have Dr. Van Dyke. I'm so glad you've been able to join us. Thank you for your kind introduction. It's a pleasure to kick off on how to write a manuscript, uh, tips to get published. These are my affiliations and my disclosures. So let's imagine the situation that you've been working for many years on a scientific project. Now it's finished and you want the world to know about your findings. So you want it to be published. Moreover, you want it to be read. But readers do not have to read what you write. And reviewers do not have to accept your manuscript. So your first goal is to grab them and hold their attention. So you have to make it easy for your readers. But how do you do that? In order to answer that question, it's important to know how readers look at the paper. When they receive a journal, how do they decide on what to read? Well, we know from this survey among readers published in the New England Journal of Medicine that readers first look at the title. Am I interested in this? And if so, the next thing they read is the end of the abstract. If they're still interested, then they globally skim the abstract and then they go to the tables and figures. And only then they will read the full paper. So this is what readers find important. But the first hurdle is not the readers, but it's the reviewers and editors. If your manuscript doesn't pass the review process, then it will never reach the readers. 
So what do editors and reviewers find important? The tables and figures are the most important for editors and reviewers. That's what they will look at first. It means that the big message of your paper should come and be clear from the tables and figures. So my key message is that you have to picture in your mind your readers and reviewers reading your work. Reviewers should be able to read the table and figures without having to read the text of your manuscript. So make it easy for them. Don't use abbreviations in the tables and the figures. So you have done your experiments, you've analyzed your data, and now you're going to write them up. You know what it takes to get and grab the attention of the readers, and you know how to please the reviewers. So where do you start writing? I would encourage you to start with the tables and the figures. No one gets writer's block with the tables and the figures. Lots of people get writer's block by starting with the introduction. It's wonderful to see your own data and get inspired by them. The tables and figures are part of your message. The message starts with description of your patient population. Then you describe how the data were collected, you classify the endpoints, and the way you analyze the data. You should explain the techniques in sufficient detail to allow someone knowledgeable in the field to replicate your work. Then to the results. Your table one should always be the patient characteristics. If you fail to produce table one, then your manuscript will be returned. Your results follow the same order as your methods. Occurrence of endpoints, your analysis of the data, sub-analysis, and you state your conclusions in your results section. You need to provide enough data to convince the readers of your conclusions. Use abundant tables and figures and refer to them in your results section. Don't repeat what is shown in the tables and the figures. So now you've done your tables and figures, you've written up your methods and results, so now you can make a start with your abstract. You might question if before you start with your abstract, you write a skeleton um, uh, for, of the introduction and discussion, and only then go to the abstract. That's up to you. But I personally prefer to now first make a start with the abstract. And the abstract follows the same order as your manuscript. Introduction, method, results, discussion, and conclusions. Ensure that your abstract can stand alone. Do not include data that is not in the paper. Then to the introduction. In your introduction, you go from broad to specific. And don't mention the obvious. A total knee prosthesis is an effective treatment for end-stage osteoarthritis. We all know that. It just takes up redundant space in your manuscript. Sufficiently introduce the current state of research without it becoming a review paper. Explain why your study was conducted. What was your research question? What was your hypothesis? And clearly describe the purpose and objective of your study. In your discussion, your first paragraph should always be a short summary of your main findings. Make sure that the reader knows what the paper is all about. Then compare your findings with other work. Relate your results to the literature. Our findings are consistent with and extend those from prior research, etc., etc. Then mention the implications of your work. Our results must be interpreted in the context of the study design, etc., etc. And then end with your conclusions. And you describe future avenues, uh, future avenues of research on the topic. 
Then to the title. The title comes last and is probably the most important part of your study. It is the title which makes the reader decide if he or she continues to read your work or if he puts it aside. So you have to seduce your readers with the title, or at least you have to try to grab their attention with it. For Jesus, we demand a conclusive title. The reader should be able to get the main message from the title. I will give you an example. A systematic review on the treatment of proximal hamstring rupture. If you read this title and you treat these only incidentally, you will put it aside. However, if it reads, acute repair of hamstring avulsions result in better outcome than conservative management, a systematic review, then you go, hmm, a systematic review, um, uh, operative result is better. Hmm, I, I might have to change my practice, so I better read this article. Then the text boxes. The text boxes are unique for Jesus, and we believe they are very important. What are the new findings and what is already known? Then to the references. Failure to cite sources violates the rights of those who originated ideas. Always refer to original articles. I recently followed a masterclass by Thomas Lee, the former editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, and he stated, only cite living researchers. And I hope and think that it was meant to be somewhat provocative. But what he said is, be smart and think of your reviewers, that is, your potential reviewers. Reviewers are human. So what he said is that when a reviewer receives, receives a manuscript that is related to their prior work, they will flip to the back and check the reference list to see if their own work is cited. And I can tell you, he said, that when I receive an article which is in the field of my prior work and I flip to the back and I see that my work is not cited, then I go through a range of emotions which start with depression, which then evolve to hatred. Let's see what this schmuck did. And this puts me in a bad mood, which does not help to have a positive attitude towards the manuscript. So think about your potential reviewers, he says. And that might be clever to do. And you might make sure that their work is cited or at least acknowledged. As to the structure, minimize the distance between subject and verb. The point or quintessence of a sentence should be at the end of the sentence. Readers pay attention to the beginning and to the end of every unit of writing, whether it's a sentence or a paragraph. So if the sentences gets too long, then use two sentences instead of one. Start broad and then go specific. Always write with the reader in mind. Be clear and concise. Avoid needless words. Don't use two words when one will do. Use the KISS principle. Keep it stupid simple and short. Be tough-minded about what's a must-have and what is a nice-to-have. Keep sentences short. Keep paragraphs short. Paragraphs start with a lead sentence, the body of the paragraph, one or two sentences, and then a text sentence that leads to the next paragraph. Make sure every sentence follows logically from the sentence before. The length for an original manuscript, title page uh, typically one, uh, abstract typically one, introduction typically one, don't make the introduction too long. The message should be the body of your article 
as well as the results and the discussion. And one page for references. Authorship. The first author should be the person who did the most of the work and who writes the article. Covert authors are fine. The lead PI should be named last. And generally, the lead PI is the corresponding author. Submission. Choose a journal and don't be distracted by impact factors. In today's online universe, if your work is good, the readers everywhere will find it, guaranteed. To summarize, picture your reviewer reading your work. Start with the tables and the figures. Title and text boxes are key. Keep it stupid, simple and short. Use the KISS principle and be smart on the references. Submit your best papers to the GISACOS. And that concludes my presentation. Um, I thank you very much for your uh, attention and I look forward to the discussion. Thanks, Nick. That, that's really a fantastic talk. I really, uh, we really appreciate that. And uh, the beauty of the pre-recorded uh, talk is we're perfectly on time. So uh, I'm gonna move on right now. Uh, uh, Dr. Carey is up and uh, ready to get, provide his overview of the review process. Um, Take it away, Jim. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you. And I, I appreciate the invitation to talk on this topic. My um, conflicts of interest are disclosed here. One of the interesting piece of information I found was in Nature in 2018, this revealing peer review um, figure. And then I found that in the 1890s, the UK scientific societies debated the adoption of a referee system to curb the veritals veritable sewage thrown into the pure stream of science. So in some ways, today's talk is just, um, you know, showing how does an edit editor curb the veritable sewage or no, it's, it's to make sure that your pure stream of science isn't interpreted, misinterpreted as a veritable sewage. But actually, I found that the process is more similar to evaluating admission to medical school, where you have all these really qualified applicants but there might be certain features that make one applicant a better fit for the school or, or some features that make it seem like a, an applicant might not be a great fit for a certain school. So the objectives today are to review some of the features of the review process so you can see how we see it as editors and consider how your writing will be reviewed. The three main tasks of editors related to the, the review process are choosing reviewers, making decisions, and then coordinating edits of the manuscripts. And I should note that as an associate editor, my actions are subject to approval of the editor-in-chief and executive editor. So you'll see when I sh share my screenshots that I might have an option to initiate an action of acceptance, but um, they'll actually approve it and accept it. So, Here's an example of some uh, editor cues, and those three tasks are depicted here. <laughs> Reviewer suggestions needed. So that has right now in my uh, Q5 manuscripts, five papers. So for each one, I'll need to suggest reviewers, and I'll show you that process. And then there's one decisions needed. I have two papers in that queue. That's when uh, three reviews come back or, or more and then a decision can be made based on those reviews. 
And then I don't have any papers in my revisions needing action queue right now, but that's where manuscripts will go um, that need some coordinated editing or maybe further consideration for uh, revisions. So for selecting the, or choosing reviewers, the first step is selecting the, the relevant expertise terms. And that occurs for each manuscript. So for example, if I had a manuscript about knee injuries and tennis athletes, I would choose these terms, tennis, ACL, epidemiology, or that's one of the terms that can be choose, chosen. And then based on the list that comes back, then specific reviewers are chosen with considerations, including the following. And I'll show you in the next table where this comes up, but you can look at, well, do they have an active review? Because they should really probably be doing one review at a time. Um, how many reviews do they accept over the last 12 months? What's their average turnaround time? When was their last completed review? Do they have any conflicts of interest for uh, this particular study that may be relevant? And so that's at the bottom of this slide. I clipped the, the table, but this would have reported back 62 potential reviewers. And I can see their name, institution, all of their expertise terms to see if maybe they are particularly well suited for this manuscript. And then some of the other features we just talked about, active reviews and average turnaround time and so on. And it's even possible to look at some of their recent reviews on similar topics and just kind of assess the quality of the review. And then the next step would be after the reviews are completed and then it's time to make a decision. One of the first things that I do with my orders, I review the reviews and I consider some of the following aspects of each review. There's a spot for an overall recommendation. I look at that. Um, there's, a, there's some places where you can classify the impact, the interest, the priority as you know, high, medium, and low. And then I, of course, I look at the specific comments, what kind of um, things in, in each manuscript were brought up that may be a serious flaw or like a really good point to make this meaningful research. And then after looking at the reviews, I review the manuscript and then go back to the reviews. Uh, so here's one of the tables that comes back and then overall the reviewer will make a recommendation like uh, reconsider after major revisions or reject, something like that. The subject of the work, a few sentences about that. And then there's uh, spots where they can classify the impact, the interest, the Overall, overall priority for publication and so on in the table. Then the bottom are the comments for the author. And then it's time to make a decision. And uh, there are some major options, which I'll show on the, the next uh, slide, which includes adding an additional editor or another reviewer, like if a tiebreaker is needed or some special expertise is needed. Um, accepting a manuscript, of course, that's an option. Uh, requesting a revision. Is a, is a common option. And then rejection, which un unfortunately that's um, what has to be commonly decided because there's only maybe room in a journal for 15 to 20% of the articles to be accepted. Um, so here are these actions. So you can add an editor, add another reviewer, initiate an acceptance or a request revision, either a minor or major revision or additional revision and then, um, or rejection. 
And then for the subset that are invited to um, make revisions, um, I look at the response to the reviewers, ensure that the authors have addressed every point that was proposed by uh, every reviewer. And then in, a re in the revised manuscript, I ensure the authors have actually appropriately made the corresponding edits that uh, for their responses and that they don't make any additional unwanted edits. And then for coordinating some of the final edits, uh, sometimes there are additional requests or for minor or major revisions. Um, some edits are just proposed for clarity or consistency with the journal guidelines, but the ultimate goal is to work together and towards acceptance of uh, all the meaningful works. Uh, some of the tips in light of the review process and uh, serving as an editor has made me a bit of a better writer because I, I think about these things. I think it's important to welcome an epidemiologist and a statistician to the research team early. When you in, bring an epidemiologist and statistician into the study late, it's basically a post-mortem analysis. They just tell you what your study died from. But if you bring them in early, you can really get some uh, thoughtful insights and, and stay out of some troubles. Uh, try to make each figure and table complete and able to stand alone. That's actually already been brought up and um, I, I like that a lot. Um, and then on this slide, I've noted a few things. The manuscript should comfort the reader that the roles of bias, confounding, and chance have been minimized. These are the features that the reviewers bring up the most. You know, this study was too susceptible to bias for this reason, or the study was confounded by this, or there's just not enough patience. The chance played too great of a role in this, or too many p more p-values than patients, you know. Um, describing reliability of variables is something that's commonly uh, brought up sample size planning, how did how do you select the numerators and denominators? And then when you report findings, well, what does that magnitude really mean if, if there's um, a 1% increase in ACL uh, re-ruptures? Like, well, how many patients would need to be treated to see that? Sometimes it's easy to detect that. Sometimes it's hard when it's like the odds ratio has been doubled. Um, what does that really mean for us as clinicians or scientists? And for reference, I just noted that um, I've written some editorials on the magnitude and strength of findings and reliability, chance, confounding, bias. And sometimes I hope that these can be a hope, uh, useful reference for, for some people. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. That was fantastic. And uh, again, I'll second your, your reference to the, your, your um, editorial uh, uh, series there really does serve as a, as a great um, as a great base for for all of our reviewers to to be critical readers and uh, as much as we can understand about the review process helps us all uh, be better scientists and, and get our paper published which is what we're talking about today so your, your talk was fantastic um, I, I thank you our next speaker is going to be uh, Linder Blunkevort uh, on how to respond to these reviews so we've seen the review process from the, at least from the AJSM side and now we're going to hear you know, how do we as, as authors respond to these reviews? Linder, take it away. Well, thank you, Brett. It's a pleasure to uh, be in this uh, webinar. Thank you for the invitation. And so when the review comes back, it's not always uh, good news. In most of the cases, as is already uh, explained, 
uh, it comes back uh, with the request to revise. So I'm a managing editor of uh, Journal of Isacos, and I'm associate professor of orthopedic surgery and sports medicine at the Amsterdam University Medical Center in the Netherlands. I have nothing to disclose in this relation in relation to this presentation. Let's start. First and foremost, you get feedback from, from independent peers. And this is for free. You do not have to pay for that extra. In return, accept invitations to review. So when you're at a certain level in your career, expect to accept invitations to review. I have a few take home messages for today. Number one, the reviewer is always right. Second, you may disagree with the comment. Respond to all comments. Make and mark the required edits and include all authors in the process of revision and replying to the review comments. So number one, the reviewer is always right. The reviewer is your peer and he's a volunteer. He does not have to review the manuscript. The reviewer invests time to review your manuscript. But although selected carefully by the editor, the reviewer may not always be fully knowledgeable about your study. You and your co-authors are the experts on the topic that you present in your manuscript. So consider that. Be polite and respectful at all times in your replies to the comments. For instance, we wish to thank the reviewers for reviewing the manuscript and providing valuable comments. Or we value your comments and suggestions. They helped us to improve our manuscript. Those are most of the time standard openings. Contrary to point one, you may disagree with a comment because an author may not be, a reviewer may not be fully knowledgeable about your topic. So if you disagree with a comment or a suggestion, ponder about why the reviewer made the comment. Be respectful in your response and explain your position in regard to the comment and suggestion with arguments and or evidence. In case of a misunderstanding by the reviewer, which can happen, find a possible cause because that cause might well be in your text in your explanation of the method, in your rep representation of your results, and then revise. So in that case, you may disagree with a comment and, a, and an argument or a suggestion, but you still have the room to revise the text such that you take away that misunderstanding. So, your response might be, we apologize for not being clear on this issue. We have revised the text for better, for better clarity. And of course, address the comment. 
respond to all comments. Each comment or suggestion you have to read and analyze, reply and explain how you addressed it, be clear and concise, do not ignore comments. And two or more issues may be raised in one comment, so be uh, thoughtful about that and not addressing just one or two. Make and mark required edits. And most of the journals have that in their policy. You have to provide a revised manuscript and a manuscript with track changes. And these track changes will also help the editor to check whether you have made unwanted and unrequested edits. If you make edits or make changes to your manuscript that are not related to the comments, you have to put them in your responses to the reviewers as well. So you have to include all changes and that includes all these track changes and explain the changes that were not requested. Do not make revisions that are not compliant with the journal's instructions for authors. The reviewer may not always know the instructions for authors for a particular journal. So for instance, your suggestion is clear and valid but it's not in line with the journal's te technical instructions. Or we value your command, but the suggested revision of the title does not comply with the specific instruction for this type of manuscript. Include all authors in the process of responding to the review commands and the revisions, because each author is responsible for the content of the manuscript. So all authors must check and agree with the responses to the comments. The revisions made in the manuscript. And finally, with the response letter. So make sure that every author is included. The response letter contains a note of appreciation to the reviewers, the summary of the major comments, responses and revisions, because those are the key items that make your manuscript acceptable or not. So the major comments that are important for the acceptance. So you do not have to summarize minor comments and responses. And followed by a point by point responses to the comments. So we thank the authors for committing that time to thoroughly review the manuscripts, even if you notice that they're not thoroughly reviewed, but anyway, based on the comments, we have reorganized the introduction, clarified the statistical methods and provide ample discussion of the possible implications for standard of care. That is a sort of summary of the major command, but you may include the specifics of the major commands raised by the reviewers. Sometimes you have a hostile reviewer or a suspected hostile reviewer. If you suspect that the reviewer is hostile towards you and your manuscript for any reason that you can think of, do not communicate this suspicion to the reviewer. Write a separate letter to the editor expressing your concern and the editor will take it out of your hand and will evaluate your arguments 
anti-review comments and take appropriate action. So that is dealt. So do not worry about reviewers. The editor has an important role in directing this process. Going back to my key take home messages to conclude, the reviewer is always right. It, even if it, if it appears that he is not right, you may disagree with the comment, respond to all comments, make and mark the required edits, include all authors in the process. Responding to peer reviews is an important part of the publication process and can help you to improve the quality of your manuscript. But of course, it all starts with good quality research, including any person that can help you to improve your study and improve the analysis of the data and reporting the data. Which means that at times a critical review from someone outside the author group or your particular project group may help to prevent serious mistakes. Like for example, what was noted to include on time a statistician or an epidemiologist or anyone else outside your group uh, with a broad view uh, to read your manuscript prior to submission. And that may help a priori to prevent serious comments and serious problems with your manuscript. So that's all, folks. I have some further reading for you. I will, in the chat, I will put up the links to these uh, four articles, which are online and free. So you can you copy and paste those uh, links and then uh, use them for further reading. Thank you. Thank you, Leander. Appreciate you uh, providing those links to us. So that's really good. Um, so, you know, we're doing a good that job. Time. Yeah, thank you. We're, we're paying attention here. We've listened to, to, we've been following Dr. Van Dyke's advice. Um, we saw the inside working of the review process with Dr. Carey. We've responded to our reviews. We get our letter back, uh, our email back saying it's, it's accepted. Very exciting. We share that with all our co-authors. Um, what do we do now? So, you know, hopefully Dr. Tanaka is gonna be able to at least share her approach on, on what she does after your article is accepted. Uh, how do we optimize our exposure for that article? Miho. Great. Well, thanks very much uh, for the opportunity to give this talk um, and to the webinar organizers. I'm learning a lot, uh, so this is great. Um, I'm tasked with talking about optimizing exposure for your article. Oops. Let's see. Okay, I have no relevant financial disclosures. Uh, I do serve on the Electronic Media Editorial Board for AJSM, uh, along with a few other journals. So your paper has been accepted. Um, well, first of all, congratulations. Uh, I think we've all been there where, you know, we get something accepted and then we wonder, is anyone actually going to read what I've written? Um, and especially now, you know, we know that the number of research publications in our field is continuing to increase. And so this sort of cover to cover reading is, uh, I feel like, becoming less and less common and people are selectively choosing uh, what to read. 
Um, and with this digital era, I think the way that people obtain information is changing. Uh, we can see from our trainees that the ways that they learn uh, and obtain education, or even for us with continuing education, continues to evolve. Um, and this means that we have to find new ways to discuss our research findings, and that there's also new and additional metrics that we can use. And so we'll talk a little bit about this today. So how do we call attention to our papers after they're published? Well, a lot of the journals uh, that you that accept your papers will actually help you with this process. So you might see that on the title page, they may ask for in addition to your affiliation, you can also add your social media handles. Um, they may ask you to submit a social media post or a link uh, after your paper has been accepted. They may even invite you to submit a video abstract or to even participate in a podcast or a webinar. And so this is something that not only helps with their engagement, but it helps with yours and it helps get more eyes on your paper. And so when you're invited to do something like this, uh, I recommend saying yes. Uh, if you don't know how to do it or you want more guidance, I think just ask uh, because it really does benefit um, the journals and I think they'll be very willing to help you with this process. In terms of uh, other ways, you know, I think most of us have some sort of um, marketing team, whether it's with our institution or whether it's with our practice. Uh, and even though we typically don't think about marketing research, you know, this really is a good way to get content out there. And so if you have a website, you know, you can post um, a summary of your paper on the website. There's usually a social media page that belongs to the institution where you can share this with them as well. You know, and this can be in the form of a summary article. So something that just goes online, online that talks about what you've written and the importance of that, or even crafting this and, you know, making this more patient facing so that a patient can understand what the relevance of this is. Uh, we also have at our institution an internal communications, you know, we call it the paper chase. Um, and so it just goes out to the university in terms of what papers have been published, you know, that uh, that day. And so there's lots of different ways um, to kind of share this uh, with other people. And so these might be considerations as well. Specifically, when it comes to social media, um, you know, this is not a specific talk just about social media and there are other ways to get this information, but there are obviously many platforms ranging from Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, um, and, you know, lots of different options here. The way, the reason that people like this is that it allows for personal control. So you're not submitting and waiting for something to come out. You can actually just craft your posts and then you can put it out there. It's real time information and you can potentially have a broad audience and a wide reach with this. Um, and so how should we be using social media for research purposes? Well, I think that most people on this call will fall into two categories. You're either using social media or you think it's, you know, uh, a terrible thing. Um, and what I'm here to say is that not all social media is bad. Um, you don't necessarily have to post, you know, pictures of everything that you're eating for every meal. It really can be a powerful tool if you're utilizing it correctly. Um, so my recommendations with this are to build a professional account if you're looking to use this for research purposes. Um, if you don't already have account, um, you can look online for tips. It's very self-explanatory. And uh, you can also ask your children or your trainee 
ease. Uh, most young people have an account and it's very easy to navigate this. So you can create an account that way. Uh, if you already have a personal account, um, I generally recommend you know, having a professional account um, because your audience for research might not be the same audience for your personal account. Um, and I think that it's very important to think about who you want to reach through your social media account as you're sharing your research. Do you wanna reach your peers? Do you want your patients to pay attention? Do you want to reach physical therapists who might be a source of referrals? And these posts should be crafted accordingly. So you don't want, you know, if you have, if you're trying to reach your patients, you're probably not going to post your abstract or your surgical technique. Um, or if you're posting for your peers and you're trying to get engagement there, you might not be talking about, you know, patient education. And so I think defining your voice, if you will, uh, for social media and how you want to craft uh, your message uh, through your research, I think is one of the most important steps as, uh, as we get into that. Um, in terms of how to get online engagement, so it's not just about putting something out there. So posting it and then sending it into the nothingness. You really want to have a community online who's going to read and engage and interact with you. Um, so through this, you want to build or join a community. So and this online community, again, can be shaped by your interests, which may be your peers, which may be your patients. Um, and one way to get involved with that is to follow similar profiles or people with similar interests, because this is where the dialogue begins. Um, you can also increase the visibility of any sort of post uh, by using things like hashtags, which basically, you know, with a hashtag, if you search a hashtag, you will get every post that essentially lists that specific hashtag. So if I put, you know, hashtag me and you search that, you'll see my post and every other post that includes that. And so this is one way to link to everything else that's out there and also tagging other accounts. So letting somebody know that you're posting about them or, um, Acknowledging them or acknowledging an institution can also increase the reach of your posts as well. Um, other ways to increase engagement, so not just putting information out there, um, but creating dialogue can be helpful as well. Um, and this can be in the form of asking questions. Uh, where would you place your graph? Or even using the poll function, which is something that's fairly popular on Twitter. Other opportunities for sharing outside of our control um, include things like medical news where you can be featured um, and you know media as well, uh, newspapers, magazines, radio or TV. Obviously these are not things that we can uh, really make happen, but a lot of these outlets will find your paper, um, usually not in the journal, maybe on social media or they'll catch wind of it that way. And so this is another way to get your research noticed. Um, if you are using social media uh, for to disseminate your research ideas, you know, some tips for this one is, you know, to be professional. And this is why I think having a professional versus a personal account can be helpful with this. I think having a consistent voice is very helpful as well. So not just posting on that one paper, but really, you know, post about what your expertise is in and also posting regularly. So not just a one time thing, but having routine posts about similar topics will really increase engagement. And then with with those posts, increasing engagement and interacting with others, we'll get more eyes on whatever you're posting. And lastly, joining a network or a community where people with shared interests or similar interests uh, might be following along and uh, might be the most likely audience that you'd want to reach uh, with these posts. 
screen is struck here. So alt metrics. Um, this is one way uh, that we can now track engagement uh, with research beyond traditional citations. So it's not just how much you reference, but it really thinks about you know how many shares or mentions you're getting, how often this is picked up by a news outlet or mentioned in a blog or on some site, uh, some sort of web page. And this is you know if you look at a lot of journals, uh, in addition to the citations, you'll see an alt metrics score. And I think that in the digital era, this has become more and more popularized and an increasing tool for people to understand the exact reach uh, of who's reading their papers. And so this can be helpful to understand that. Uh, and, addition, and in addition, publishing in an open access forum. So, you know, this study showed that the rate of open access publishing has been increasing over time. Um, and that if you do publish open access, uh, that the number of PubMed and Crossref citations actually is higher um, and also higher in terms of the altmetric mentions, which we just discussed. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I think not all research papers are hot topics and you can't really be chasing, you know, getting picked up uh, by the media uh, with the research. Um, you know, this is really dependent on is it timely? Is it a relevant question? Is it a topic that people care about? And so I think that's really not the goal when it comes to research. And as we've heard, you know, throughout this entire webinar, I think the most important thing is that your publication is a permanent contribution to advancing medicine. And I think that, you know, keeping that in mind is the most important thing. However, there are a lot of people out there who probably want to or should read it, but might not know how to look for it. And this is where getting your information out there can be helpful. So in summary, um, if you have papers that are getting published, congratulations on that. Uh, just know that when that happens, the journal that accepted your paper is likely going to want to promote your paper. And so in those cases, you should say yes. Um, this includes, but isn't limited to social, social media, webinars, podcasts, video abstracts. And if you don't know how to do it, get help. They are very willing to help you because it helps them as well. Um, there is a little bit of overlap between research and marketing. And so looking within your own institution for um, institutional or practice resources um, can be a creative way to market. And then lastly, with social media, you know, consider creating a professional account that's dedicated to this. Building an online network and regularly sharing information or posts can be helpful, as can be engaging in discussions, because you never know what sort of collaborations may develop from this. Thanks very much for your attention. Thank you, Miho. That was great. That was fantastic. Well, hopefully we can get the whole panel up right now. Uh, there have been a bunch of, of questions from uh, from the uh, the audience today, as well as I have a few questions. And, uh, um, uh, you know, I, I think that was really a fantastic overview of the process at uh, you know, common sports medicine. Um, I, I guess while I have everyone uh, together, I just want to say, uh, empower everyone that's watching today to engage with the journals these are your journals um and and i think i encourage everyone to be to be reviewers i think you'll be better scientists if you participate in the review process and uh again be part of the process and, and help shape uh the journal because these are your journals um i guess i i throw out at first you know and, and nick i think you had a really great talk um the uh, it was interesting to see some of the tips that you had for folks, and I think those are things that I think all of us on, on the panel are also authors, and so I think we uh, you know, certainly a, a lot of the stylistic points I think are, are very well appreciated. Um, 
Do you have any uh, plagiarism software at, that you guys standardly run folks through at, at Jay Isakoff's? I know at AGSM we do. Uh, yes, thank you, Brett, uh, uh, for the question. And uh, uh, yes, we have the Identicate uh, um, um, software. Uh, so for all the manuscripts, uh, they go through uh, the Identicate. Um, and, uh, and that's the way we uh, identify uh, plagiarism. And uh, recently we had uh, um, uh, two examples, um, which uh, uh, of plagiarism and uh, the Identicate uh, um, identified it. Uh, you have that also for uh, uh, the AGSM in place, I guess, yes. the same system? Yes, and you know, again, periodically these do come up. I think the biggest problem that we see is a small amount of overlap sometimes, uh, especially with, usually in the method section, as you said, that's often the meat of the article, but many, many investigators use a similar methodology for multiple manuscripts. And sometimes it's hard to parse those apart. And that oftentimes is what uh, registers with a certain uh, percentage. Yeah, the problem is when um, authors um, uh, take uh, huge chunks of uh, um, uh, their of other manuscripts, sometimes of their own, and they don't mention it in the in the references. Uh, then it gets to be a problem. Uh, when they they mention it, then you can uh, ask them to rephrase. But when they really take big chunks um, uh, of their introduction and discussion um, uh, and, and, and even in their methods, um, then the, that's obviously uh, um, plagiarism if they don't mention the source. Uh, Lane, that maybe you can, uh, uh, we had two examples, maybe you can say something about it. Yeah, it is sometimes quite difficult to, to discern whether it is on purpose or not. Uh, I'm, I'm sure from the old time where we did not have plagiarism check and it was quite useful to, to copy paste a method section from your own work and from your own research group without any reference. But uh, so in the method sections, methodology, Sometimes it's very difficult to find uh, 10 different phrases for uh, the, same, uh, the same method. So this, the, this, uh, the way to, to prevent any problems with that is just at the beginning of the method sections, refer to your previous publications and say, well, this is a summary of the methods and, uh, and that will help. Uh, my major concern are the introduction and the discussions where you sometimes find uh, um, citations, literal citations, or sometimes citations with small changes uh, that are not uh, referenced as such as a quotation. Sometimes the reference is there, but uh, the citation is not, not marked by quotes. And that is what, what we are keen on, uh, is it that you cannot present ideas as if they are of as if they are your own ideas and so we have to identify which is coming from others and but in general that is not a, not not a big deal but sometimes you may, may see you may see that in in current concept review systematic reviews where you actually do a review of literature and publications that are out there also in editorials, you have to be very careful in 
what you write down uh, because you have sources that you use for your editorial. So my, my, my tip to my students usually is to um, ask them to first draft the manuscripts with keywords only. And of course, using some sources, but write the keywords and then one week later, write everything out in your own words using the keywords. And then there's very little chance that you do literal citations. Yes, I, I agree, Linda. Thank you. Uh, uh, Jim, I, I have a question for you. Uh, do you ever, uh, how do you feel about authors that request specific reviewers or also, uh, I know on AJSM, we have the ability to both request as well as even uh, a, a safe review. What are your thoughts on that? In general, I appreciate when they suggest some potential reviewers, certain topics, um, they actually, know who has expertise in the field and you know i don't need to go through the search and 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 find that um i believe that maybe it's nice to have one reviewer be suggested by the authors but not have um more than that you know because i'd worry about maybe a potential for selecting reviewers that would see your work favorably yeah, it's interesting because I know a few years ago when we looked at it, 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 you'd think that they'd always be positive reviews, but actually it's, it's sometimes it's counter. Sometimes those more harsh reviews are <laughs> folks that were suggested. Have you seen that as well, Nick? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we see that as well. I, I like it um, uh, if they... Um, um, if they come up with a suggestion and, and we also use one uh, of the, their suggested reviewers um, and I and and we don't typically see that they come with a favorable um, uh, or a very quick fix um, a review um, so so you in 99% I would say uh, they come with a proper review which is as good and as valuable as the review, or maybe sometimes better um, and more useful than the review uh, from the reviewer that uh, that we've been cho chosen. Yeah, so I find it really useful and good. Miho, I, I really oh so go please go, Linder. My 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 suggestion would 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 then be is to include such a person uh, prior to submission submission of a manuscript eh? so it's outside if you were prior to submission uh, to and that will help you a lot to improve your manuscript but i can understand that it's sometimes not doable and takes some uh, some more time but uh, i i do appreciate uh, suggested reviewers and if there are two or more listed and i only use one and then independently pick another one as second review. Yes, and it definitely helps bring in new reviewers sometimes that we weren't aware of. And, and as yeah. we've said many times, you know, the reviewers are the uh, are the lifeblood of the journal. And you, we really encourage everyone here today to reach out and volunteer as a as a reviewer uh, because that's what that's what makes it all possible. So. Um, uh, Miho, I, I I really appreciate your talk. I thought it was fantastic, and um, you know I think uh, there is some emerging data now that it's not just uh, that it actually helps not just your social media uh, likes, but but social media activity seems to 
lead to more citations. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's just a shift in terms of, you know, how we, um, how we learn, right? It's changing. And so I think with that, we need to adapt the way, you know, I think from the journal side, we've been working hard to meet those needs and to um, get our, uh, get our papers, you know, to our audience. Uh, and I think it works in both ways. And so now, you know, most people um, don't, well, I don't, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I think it's, I look at my residents and they mostly, they don't read paper copies of, of our journals, right? They're searching um, and it's a very focused search. Um, and so I think that the more you can, you know, put out keywords and, you know, get, come up in these searches, the more you, the more likely you are to, to get that. Yeah, well, uh, I'd like to thank the panel today. I think uh, it was a really fantastic discussion. I, I appreciate the participation as well. Uh, we've been having many questions coming in and we're trying to answer those as well. Again, I would shout out to the, to, to the, 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 the audience today to get involved in your journals, uh, volunteer to be a reviewer and be part of the process. We really, uh, we really wouldn't survive without that. So uh, I thank everyone yes, for your participation. Yes, sir. There's a question from MP, Mark Porter, about my talk. My talk suggests that editors are perfect. This is clearly not correct. Now, I fully agree with Mark. Editors are also ordinary, normal people, and we make mistakes. Rather than hostile, the reviewers can be biased, especially when they are reviewing a superior paper that questions their personal research. Uh, you are correct, but there are two different different issues. But it's a very good remark, uh, Mark, that you say that um, reviewers reviewing a superior paper that questions their personal research is a, 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 a good a good statement. And uh, people researchers reviewer may sometimes be overwhelmed by something that they say is superior to, to my work and they question them their own work. And that, that can ref be reflected in the review comments. And the first issue is different. And editor not a hostile reviewer might be a reviewer that is a competitor. And for instance, I have witnessed in the United States that people are competing for, for the same grants and that a reviewer may be hostile towards a research group competing for the same grants and then be, be a little bit more stern or picky on a particular manuscript in, in order to prevent the manuscript to be uh, published. So that is the competition that sometimes are, that we sometimes have within research group when it comes to the money. So those are the two different issues, Mark. Okay, Alinda, thank you so much. Uh, uh, Brett, I'd like to thank you for uh, chairing this uh, session. Um, and, and James and Mio, thank you so much. Uh, Alinda also. Uh, I like very much the cooperation between uh, ATSM and uh, GISACOS. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you all. Thank you.